This is a podcast from Rover. Rex Today. With NetSpeed. Internet solutions for everyone and their dog. Now I'm a farmer and I'm digging, 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 digging. G'day everyone, how are we getting on on this Thursday? Welcome into Rex Today. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to be talking to Mr. Biodiversity. That is David Norton. We're having a chat about the National Policy Statement for Indigenous Biodiversity, among other things. He is a wealth of knowledge, this man, so stay tuned for that in just a moment. Then it is National Volunteer Week, and we're going to have a catch-up with Tim Gale from the Game Animal Council about what they're doing to recognise all the volunteers out there in the hunting world. So that's all to come here on Rex Today. All right, but first up on the program today, Professor David Norton has over 40 years' experience in New Zealand ecology and conservation across public and private land. Now, he retired from his work at the University of Canterbury last year and he moved to Lake Hawea. But uh, people tell me he seems to be busier than ever with his own consultancy business, Biodiversity Solutions, and he's known for his work with native biodiversity within primary production systems, especially around sheep and beef farms. He joins us now. David, a pleasure. How are you? Well, I'm good, thank you, and great to talk to you. So, firstly, let's just get a bit of background here. Your involvement with farming and biodiversity, I imagine it's a fairly uh, open question with a, with a rather lengthy answer, but if you could sort of, uh, you know, give us the, the Coles Notes version of, of your background there. Sure. Look, I worked at Canterbury University for 40-odd years um, teaching ecology and conservation, and I think over that time I, I got increasingly interested in, in how we manage um, native plants and animals in the, those parts of New Zealand that are not in the conservation estate, so farmland in particular, uh, they, there wasn't much work going on in those areas, and it seemed to me like they were really important. And I, I look, I've, I've got a strong affinity with rural New Zealand, and, and I think there are some really awesome opportunities to get some really good outcomes for biodiversity by working with farmers and, and helping them understand what they have. Um, biodiversity on Farms program, what is this exactly? Yeah, that was a, a MPI-funded program with uh, Silverfern Farms and Fonterra Living Water as our industry partners, and it was designed to um, try and provide more information, more resources for farmers um, to help them manage biodiversity on their farms, and also to help train some young ecologists who can, you know, follow up and, and help support farmers. And that that project was an 18-month project. It's, it's just coming to the end now, but I think it's done a really good job in, in trying to move things forward and support farmers through that that resource provision and, and training those young ecologists. So there's obviously the Indigenous Biodiversity Strategy, and in relation to that, of course, SNAs, and that's a topic of conversation that uh, is too far away from agricultural circles at the moment. How is SNA's sort of core to uh, the Indigenous biodiversity strategy? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, the, the Indigenous Biodiversity Strategy or National Policy Statement is, is primarily about trying to identify those areas in New Zealand that have got high values and requiring councils to manage them in a consistent manner. Um, the, the problem with, with, with the whole National Policy Statement, I mean, it hasn't been... been finalised yet, it's still in draft form, is that it assumes that by calling something significant, it will somehow be okay. And I I feel that's fundamentally flawed, because assuming something significant or calling it significant is only the first step in the conservation journey, and and really it needs to be looked after. And and I think the problem with the national policy statement and, and the whole SNA approach is that it just makes this assumption that, well, we'll call it significant, we'll put all these rules on and everything will be okay. But it's not actually about supporting and engaging with farmers and helping them understand why it's important and helping them manage it. 
and that, that, that's what our work focuses on. Mm, that's very interesting. Uh, is farm biodiversity about protecting what's there, or is it about reintroduction, or is it a bit of both? It's definitely a bit of both, but it's more than that as well. To me, it's about actually um, acknowledging what what wonderful things we have in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, it's about looking after what we have. It's about enhancing what we have, but it's about doing that within the context of you know, this is our story. This, this is what makes New Zealand different. This is why we're not Australia or why we're not Europe. This mm. is what we can use to, to market our products, whether it be meat or wool or dairy products overseas. You know, this is how we're looking after our environment. You know, to me, biodiversity is important for much more, you know, it's important for its own sake. It's fundamentally important for its own sake, but it's also an important part of our story. So the thing is... Um you know, I guess it can be seen in some regards as something of a box-ticking exercise, but what you're saying is it's far deeper than that. It runs a lot deeper. Absolutely. Look, councils look at it as a box-ticking tick, box tick, exercise. <laughs> and basically, they draw a line on the map. Yes, that farmer's been told what he, what he or she can or can't do. But to me, it's a journey. Biodiversity mm. is a journey, and I, I think farmers... Um, just just like when they go on a journey to to, to improve their 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 you know reproductive um, potential of their cattle or sheep or whatever you know play the genetics it's a journey and, and biodiversity is a journey and I think the benefits from biodiversity are going to be massive because it is our point of difference um, to many other parts of the world we have this unique flora and fauna and it's on our farms. So in relation to that then uh, in terms of uh, you know farmers building biodiversity management into their day to day and I know that you've got. Some some really good videos. I saw some uh, online in relation to. I think they might have been presented uh, by Beef and Lamb, um, and and uh, addresses that uh, for the ones I've seen to a point. But in terms of incorporating that biodiversity management into day to day management on farm, what are some things that people can look at here? Yeah, um, look, there's some really simple steps. Know, know what you have. Um, I think it's really important to actually understand what you have. Don't don't try and pretend it's not there because it is there. So know what you have. Um, setting yourself some goals. Where, where do you want to go with biodiversity on your farm? Um, thinking about what might be the threats and risks to, to achieving those goals. Looking at management in a stage manner. You know, you can't do it all in one day. You know, do it over multiple years and then monitoring what you achieve. Have you got any sort of examples on farm biodiversity protection that you've seen uh, that have really impressed you um, so people can sort of get a tangible, uh, I guess, example of, of what you're talking about? Oh, look, there are many. I mean, you know, obviously there's an incredible amount of planting going on on, on farms, mm-hmm. um, whether it just be strips along the sides of, of fences or whether it's paddock corners being filled in or whether it's large blocks. And just driving across the Canterbury Plains even today, or I was up in Taranaki recently, the amount of new planting going in is just phenomenal. So that, that would be one really good example. The second example would be all of the fencing off that's going on of, of remnants, of wetlands, of streams, and the recovery that's occurring in those areas. And I guess the third example would be the amount of predator control that farmers are doing that, that again, is just not being recognised. I mean, I think I'm, I'm always astounded by just how many, you know, mustard traps or possum traps I'm seeing out there. And farmers are doing these not because they're a problem for farming per se, but because they're a problem for the biodiversity on the farm, because they got bitten in their wetlands or, or they're worried about 
um, you know, a particular reptile that might be on their farm or, or whatever. Mm. I think they're all good. there's so many of those examples. Out yeah, there. yeah, and they're really good ones that you've mentioned there. Look, the uh, the, the the predator one, um, you know, really uh, fascinates me because um, I've done quite a bit of uh, stuff with uh, Predator Free 2050, and uh, some of the technology that's emerging around that now is is actually quite extraordinary. There's some amazing stuff down here in, in the Otago Southern Lakes area where we've where we've got um, you know people setting up remote traps that they can they can you know interrogate you know from from their office and they can see what's going on and you know the efficiency we're able to achieve is much much better now than it was a few years ago. But just to add another issue in there beside that, don't underestimate the impact of deer and goats. Deer and goats are having a phenomenal impact on on our biodiversity, and I think every farmer I go to. Is, is really frustrated by, by deer and goats and, and the impacts they're having. And I think that they're a challenge because they require coordinated management. You can't manage them at a farm scale. You've got to manage them at a catchment scale. Mm. That's a good point, actually. Um, look, I was having a chat as well in relation to that with Darren Clifford the other day from Premium Game, and uh, the topic of wallabies came up. Jeez, uh, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's similar. I mean, they're, they're basically the possums on the ground. Yeah. You know, they feed in a very similar way. But I think that working together, and you know, and I couldn't emphasise this enough, working together in catchment groups is so important for farmers. You know, don't try and do it on your own. Work with your neighbours, work in catchment groups, share experience, because the problems we face are at catchment scales, things like deer um, or wallabies or weeds. And, of course, many of the birds and the plants also move around at catchment scales. So we need to manage the whole catchment. Uh, and it's interesting because when it comes to uh, those catchment areas, and I've said this ad nauseum because there's been so many examples of catchment groups and areas being literally the most effective uh, in terms of you know getting any particular area uh, into some sort of shape or um, you know ecological what would you call it uh, favourable conditions. Um, that that's really the uh, the where, where the success has been found. Look, a- absolutely, and I mean catchment groups. And well, one of my biggest fears at the moment is that we're like we're seeing jobs for nature disappearing, and all that funding. And and I think supporting catchment groups, whether it's through jobs for nature or whether it's through direct funding of catchment groups, is going to be a far more efficient way to get good biodiversity outcomes across New Zealand than putting walls into district plans. Yeah, the um, another good example of that is uh, wilding pines. Um, I've spoken to a couple of people, and they've made tremendous inroads uh, with that government funding into, uh, you know, the eradication or at least keeping wilding pines under some sort of control in certain areas. But then the funding, uh, just as things start yeah. to, you know, start to look good, the funding gets taken away. And it's getting worse. I mean, all the upsurge in carbon farming is just creating. I mean, radiata pine is, is potentially the worst wild species of them all. Yeah. And and you know, farmers are going to, have to deal with this. All those nice restoration plantings, the regenerating stands, the carnica and and whatever, are all going to be um, subjected to ongoing invasion. Particularly when we've got these untended stands of of, of pine trees for carbon. Um, I think there's some major issues out there. So working with catchment groups again is going to be so important and we need to support that really, really strongly. I know that you um, have been speaking or had spoken about uh, those flood events, particularly uh, mm-hmm. around you know, the, the Tolaga Bay scenario. You went there in yep. 2018 after that particular event and uh, I know that people have spoken to you about the most, most recent mm-hmm. one and that's a classic illustration of the point that you just made. 
Yeah, it is. And I think it also feeds into another really important point. So I think we, we need to be trying to create more diverse landscapes. So this brings it back to native biodiversity. I think native biodiversity can help create more diverse landscapes. We're not trying to convert farms into native forests. We're trying to create diverse landscapes in which native biodiversity is an integral part. And that will provide that resilience against those sorts of storm events. It'll potentially provide other additional income streams. It'll provide more shade and shelter. You know, that idea of diverse landscapes, multifunctional diverse landscapes, I think is something we've got to really, really go with in New Zealand now. Professor David Norton with us on the programme. Um, yeah, interesting uh, points that you've raised all around in terms of uh, the message that you're putting out there, uh, the biodiversity message and the uptake on that, the reception from uh, you know people out there in rural New Zealand, uh, the farming community. What's that been like? How are, you, are your ideas being received at large? I think there's a there's a massive interest in biodiversity. I think the challenge is that farmers feel um, huge pressure on them from all of the regulation that's out there. And I think also, you know, despite projects like the Farming of Native Biodiversity Project, we need to give farmers more support. My, my vision, I, I wrote a book about this 20 years ago, uh, 10 years ago now, of an Australian colleague, and we argued that what we should have is, 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 is ecologists who are available throughout rural New Zealand, hundreds of them, mm. who can provide free, independent advice to support farmers. Now, our project produced a couple of them. Um, and, yeah. you know, we, we need an awful lot more. But I think catchment groups are moving that way, and I think that's where we're going to go. But, but farmers, are, you know, farmers are feeling the pressure from regulation. That, that we need to get the policy settings changed around the ETS. We need to get incentives in to make biodiversity more, more attractive. And we need to support farmers. And I think if we do those things, farmers are really keen to do it. Farmers love the land and they're really keen to look after our biodiversity. Mm, yeah, it's a good point. That's a fair point as well. Um, uh, regenerative farming. Um, I've uh, read a, a piece where uh, I think someone spoke to you uh, for an article about this. Your, your, your thoughts? It's always a vexed issue when I bring it up, but uh, people yeah. have wild and varying views on it. Yeah. Regenerative farming is part of a continuum. Um, I think that's the way to look at it. It's not one or the other, and I think that's what's caused all of the, all of the sort of, um, you know, a vexed discussion, shall we say. Yeah. I, to, me, to me, regenerative farming is about thinking holistically about your farm, thinking about how all the parts of the farm interact with each other. So thinking about the bush remnant or the, the wetland and how it interacts with livestock, how it interacts with the birds that are flying across your farm. It's mm. taking a holistic view and it's being prepared to adapt and change your management depending on what you learn. So not doing what your parent did, parents did or your grandparents did, but changing your management in response to your observing and looking at it as a whole system. That, that's how I see regenerative yeah, it's a good explanation of it, and uh, yeah, that's the thing. It's not a very simple thing to uh, to pin down, but when you look at it in those terms, I, I feel it's uh, a lot more understandable. Um, Hawea, how are you finding uh, the move the move around uh, around Lake Hawea? It's uh, it's a pretty nice place. It's an awesome place to live. I mean, look, um, the mountains are our first love, and, and being close to the mountains and the tramping, having lived in a city most of my life, uh, is absolutely wonderful. And it's really nice. I, mean, I work with high country farmers, and it's nice to have some of them on my doorstep here as well and just be in this environment. I'm, I'm very fortunate and, and, and feel very lucky that I can live here. It's a privilege. Have you got a favourite place in the South Island high country? Oh, I wondered if you might ask that <laughs> <laughs> 
the, the whole the whole the whole South Island High Country. Look, I mean, I've worked on some wonderful properties, and of course, I've tramped and climbed in some wonderful mountain ranges, and and they're all beautiful. I love the the Otago Mountains. I love the the Canterbury Mountains. I love the West Coast. Look, they're all gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Well said. Good diplomatic answer, David. Look, I appreciate your time on the show. This is Professor David Norton and uh, his uh, consultancy business is Biodiversity Solutions. An absolute pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Rick's today. We'll talk about hunting in just a moment with Tim Gale from the Game Animal Council. But first, forget juggling accounts. Now, NetSpeed offers mobile phone packages too. Home phone, broadband, and now mobile phones. Make it easy and sign up to NetSpeed's mobile phone deals. You could even win a phone. T's and C's apply. Check them out at netspeed.net.nz. Rex today with NetSpeed connecting the country and now with mobile phones. Well, this week is National Volunteer Week, and the game Animal Council has decided to celebrate this by giving a bit of a shout out to the hundreds of volunteers who are dedicating their time and effort to making a contribution to New Zealand's hunting sector. And to talk about it, General Manager of Game Animal Council Tim Gale joins us once again on the show. Tim, how you doing, pal? Good morning, Dom. I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. Good to hear it. Uh, yeah, look, um, when I have a look through uh, the breakdown of the various volunteer actions by people in the wider hunting sector, it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty good, isn't it? And uh, obviously, volunteers essential uh, to uh, to the hunting community and uh, what it gets up to. Yeah, exactly, Dom. I mean, when you look at the numbers, and you know we've just captured just a, a few efforts of organisations from around New Zealand and, you know, in just terms of the thousands of hours, the hundreds of man days, you know, and the costs and the, um, that comes to people's families and their time, it's, it's, it's massive what volunteers do for New Zealand. Yeah, it really is. And uh, look, there's some passionate people in and around that sector. So it's, uh, you know, if you just scratch the surface, it's not hard to sort of see, um, you know, how this gets clocked up in terms of uh, hours and, and, and time and all the sorts of things that you're talking about. You know, that's right. I mean, I'll give you some, some examples, you know. So just over the past year, you know, the Seeker Foundation are up in um, the Taupo Turing era. You know, they contributed 7,000 volunteer hours to game animal management. Uh, FIO conservation, so that's taking out traps uh, for predators, that's checking traps. Um, what they're also doing is, you know, people are going out hunting and then donating um, wild venison to food banks. Um, they also do tr- hut and track maintenance. You know, so we move from that central North Island right down to Fiordland. You've got the Fiordland Wapiti Foundation. So they rely on over 50 volunteers from that small southland community and that helps to run um, the management of the conservation programs. Again, they've got massive trapping programs, hut maintenance, and it's also administered the, um, the Wapiti ballot and bugle, which happens every year. We've got the Tar Foundation, you know, down in the, in the central Southern Alps, um, and they've got a, around 20 volunteers that, that annually volunteer to do targeted harvest. Um, and then we look, again, we zoom back out on that national scale, and you've got the New Zealand Deer Stalkers Association. So they do a massive amount of work, but if you just specifically look at hunter training alone, just in this last year, they've got 63 volunteer instructors that give over 200 hours each year. Um, and then they've got 521 volunteer range officers who help to administer um, the extensive network of rifle ranges and make a significant contribution to teaching firearm safety. So, I mean, the numbers are just are just staggering if you look at across it. So we just want to say thank you to those those volunteers across New Zealand. Um, just give a shout out to the massive amount of the work that they do. 
I can't believe, uh, you know, some of those numbers that you've just mentioned there, those um, volunteer instructors, uh, instructors, I should say, from the New Zealand Deer Stalkers Association, 200 hours each a year, you know, educating um, uh, inexperienced and new hunters. And that's vital, isn't it? Because we've spoken about before the sort of the uptake in uh, outdoor activities, including hunting, particularly uh, pandemic and post-pandemic. Uh, so to have people there that are able to skill people up on the do's and the don'ts is, uh, is, you know, it's invaluable. Yeah, I mean, there's just, you know, thousands and thousands of, of hunters, um, gatherers, you know, conservationists across New Zealand, and they're just absolutely passionate about getting more people into hunting and, you know, and teaching them, ensuring that they're doing a good job of what they do. And also, look, those conservation projects as well, and, uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, just sort of even even track maintenance and, and things like this. I mean, you know, without these people, that stuff just, it, it doesn't fix itself, does it, you know? No, it doesn't fix itself. And, I mean, we can look at some models, um, you know, like the Backcountry Trust, for example, who do um, hut maintenance across New Zealand, and just the the um, return on investment and how how much dollars they're able to le- leverage through um, volunteers is just huge and we wouldn't have the quality of tracks and, and I guess primarily of huts in New Zealand if we didn't have those volunteers to, to do their work. Yeah, it's uh, look, it's a it's a good feel good story, and I like that you've uh, you know you've made a point of uh, of of just giving a shout out to those uh, to those people. Um, and uh, and on the hunting front, Tim, you getting out and about much as much as you like? Never as much as you like. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've just got you know busy with family commitments. Um, there's a lot on it, lot on at work at the moment. Lots of um, I think things in the pipeline that we're working on, but yeah. Hopefully this weekend I might get out for half a day or something and go and, go and look for an animal. I think the last time I spoke to you, Tim, we were talking about the uh, the five P's for a safe and successful roar. So how did that all go, Tim, uh, out there in the in the back blocks of New Zealand? Yes, yeah, so I think we had a, a, a really safe um, raw hunting period. You know, so that's over the end of March, April, and into the start of May period. Mm. Um, and there was no there was no shooting accidents or anything like that. There were a couple of um, fatalities, and I think um, they were due to you know people having slips, trips, and falls. So I guess you know that's, that's absolutely tragic for those the friends and the family um, of those people involved. So that was you know that's absolutely always devastating that stuff. Mm. Um, and apart from that, you know, it's, I think it's been has been a really like a, a safe sort of you know. A, People have been acting safely, um, and they've been taking into consideration those five P's. Yeah, and uh, of course, uh, firearm safety, uh, you know, and regulation seems to be, uh, you know, sort of in the headlines at the moment as as well uh, in various guises. So uh, yeah, things are still sort of moving in that space as well. Yeah, there's a lot happening in that space, Dom. So we've got the um, the registry that um, comes online on the 24th of this month. So that's, you know, if you're purchasing um, a new firearm or you're selling a firearm, that will activate that you'll have to go into this online registry through Firearm Safety Authority and register the, your, you know, the transaction in your firearm. Uh, there's also ha- a lot happening in the, in the firearm ranges space. Um, and, you know, people have to register to, to have their um, application for their ranges. I think it's in, in the end by this month. So there's a lot. There's a lot happening in that space. Hard to keep up with all the changes. Yeah. Um, so if you are a firearms user, you know, make sure you go on, follow your local NZDA, New Zealand Deer Association 
you know, get their newsletter or go into the forum, safety authority or the police and just making make sure that you are complying. Yeah, good point. Good call. And uh, look, well done again for uh, celebrating National Volunteer Week. Tim Gale from the Game Animal Council. Always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you. No worries, Dom. Really great to talk with you. Eh? Thanks again to all the volunteers. Cheers. Rural Focus, brought to you by Carter's Tyres. Specialists in ag tyres, supporting NZ farmers for 35 years. All right, I can tell you, uh, hot off the press, that New Zealand is set to hold the 20th Golden Shears World Sharing and Wool Handling Championships at the home of Golden Shears in Masterton in 2026. And the announcement and the confirmation came at the Golden Shears World Council meeting in Edinburgh on the eve of the 2023 championships at the Royal Highland Show. So uh, congratulations to all involved in getting that event secured for Masterton 2026. Uh, what else is on the agenda today? Oh, yes, uh, Derry NZ has got a new chief executive. Campbell Parker is uh, the person they're taking over from Dr. Tim Mackle, who is uh, exiting that particular role. And uh, Campbell Parker, he's uh, been involved in roles in the past with PGG Rights and BNZ, Balance Agri-Nutrients. He's got a Bachelor of Agriculture from Massey University. And uh, he'll take up the post in October. And in the interim, uh, there will be an acting chief executive by the name of Peter Scott. And uh, one final one for today and uh, this controversial feral cat killing competition uh, in North Canterbury is uh, set to go ahead this weekend. Organisers are saying that $5 for every kill will be donated to charity. It's the North Canterbury hunting competition and it raises money for Rotherham School. A bit of controversy uh, earlier this year uh, encouraging children to shoot uh, feral cats. Uh, Back down uh, on that and remove the children's category but now the club has clarified uh, the rules for hunting feral cats and uh, the National Conservation Trust will be given $5 for every cat killed. That is our show for today. As always, great to have your company and don't forget to check out rexonline.co.nz Rex Today With NetSpeed Internet solutions for everyone. Talk to them today.